welcome to WISMED on Call, a podcast from the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, Mark Zaidi, Executive Director for WISMED Financial, and today we are discussing the six keys for a successful retirement. This podcast is being adapted from a recent presentation and the visual aids can be downloaded from wismedfinancial.org resources. Thank you for joining me today. So we are going to talk about keys to retirement success. And uh, these are the, the main ones here. So investment income, perhaps pension income, depending on what you may have. We're going to go through Social Security tonight, taxes, health insurance, estate plans, and long-term care. So really the one that we're not going to really touch on is the pension piece, since for, uh, for many folks, that's not necessarily as much of an issue as it was uh, years ago. Health insurance tends to be the number one reason that I hear anyway of why people don't retire early. They want to keep those benefits. They work until age 65 just because of the health insurance. So let's go through six different options that are actually available for those folks that are retiring before Medicare kicks in at age 65. So it could be something from the employer, could be COBRA. There's short-term health insurance plans. This is an interesting area. There's the Obamacare, healthcare marketplace, healthcare exchange, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's also some plans in some areas that are, that are not part of the health insurance exchange and then health sharing plans. So let's go through a little bit of details on some of these and, and why you might uh, choose one versus another. So uh, COBRA, it can go for 18 months. Typically, this is fully paid for by the employee that has left uh, their employment. And so, you know, while you're working, usually it's the employer pays a portion, the employee pays another portion, but you're typically fully on the hook for the full premium amount once you do leave that, uh, you do have that separation of service from the employer. Because a lot of health insurance plans have a, a calendar year deductible, one of the things to consider is actually dropping your COBRA at the start of a new year and jumping onto a new health insurance plan. So as an example, let's say that, that you retired on December 31st. Well, 18 months, oh, to keep your COBRA going through June 30th of the following year, which means then you'd have a new health insurance plan to start and therefore a new deductible to start. And therefore you have two health insurance plans and two deductibles in that same year. So it can make some sense to, to switch at year end rather than go the full 18 months, if that would put you in that situation where you have two plans and two deductibles in the same year. Short-term health insurance is out there. This is month-to-month -month coverage, and it, it can be extended for 12 to 18 months. Oftentimes, they may exclude pre-existing conditions. So this is one of those you just need to work with a, uh, an insurance agent to go and shop the market. The other little caveat here is that typically when you turn age 65, you are automatically eligible for a Medicare supplement policy, regardless of what your health looks like. And uh, however, if you go into age 65 with a short-term health insurance plan, just be aware that you may have to provide evidence of insurability in order to get that Medicare supplement coverage. All right, moving on to Obamacare, the health insurance marketplace, healthcare exchange, whatever you want to call it. These plans are all listed on healthcare.gov, and there are discounts there for folks that show lower income. And I say show lower income because this is based on the income that's reported on your tax return. 
So it doesn't necessarily mean that you are low income or don't have some, some wealth. It just simply means that you're not showing a lot of income on your tax return. So let me give you a perfect example of this. Let's say that you are retired and for that first year of retirement, you decide to sell an investment that you paid uh, $70,000 for and it's now worth $100,000 today. And so you get $100,000 in your checking account. However, what shows up on your tax return isn't $100,000 because remember you paid $70,000 for that investment. What shows up on your tax return is just the gain of $30,000. So I've seen examples where people are multimillionaires and because of how their income is structured, they can actually qualify for some of these health insurance subsidies because the income just isn't hitting their tax returns. So planning how you receive your income from year to year can make a, a big difference. I mentioned there's some uh, health plans that are not on the exchange. Those are at finder.healthcare.gov. Uh, last time I looked, all the plans, at least in my area, were on the, the healthcare exchange. The last one is uh, very unique as well. This is These are health sharing plans. And so they look and act and smell like health insurance, but from a technical point of view, they aren't insurance policies. They're not, ins they're not regulated like insurance is. But for practical purposes of you know, having a card to present at the hospital or the, or the clinic, you know, everything gets processed just like an insurance policy would. And the real benefit here is that the premiums are often substantially lower than an unsubsidized health insurance policy. And that's where the, the real advantage here is. Just from personal experience, when I didn't have uh, health insurance coverage offered by my employer, uh, my household, my family, we were on a health sharing plan for, for a period of time. And it actually worked out really well for us, even with my wife's uh, back surgery that we had while we were on that health sharing plan. So it's worth taking a look at. Just be aware it does not cover the preventative care expenses and it does not necessarily cover pre-existing conditions. So moving on to Medicare now. So age 65, now we've got one main decision and then a multiple decisions after that. So at age 65, eligible for Medicare, and there's really two paths to receive Medicare coverage. So original Medicare on the left side or Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage, the easiest way that, that I think of it is it's very similar to the group coverage that you might have with your employer. So there might be a network of providers that you need to stay within. Uh, there's often co-pays or deductibles that need to be met. So it's very similar in that respect, but it is paid for by the government or most of it is paid for by the government, but provided to you by a private health insurance company. Original Medicare, you see the, the different parts of original Medicare on the left side there, A, B, D, Part C is what is actually the Medicare Advantage plan. That's why that's skipped on the original Medicare side. You can switch back and forth between original Medicare and Medicare Advantage from year to year during open enrollment. Just one word, word of caution. Uh, I mentioned before that that Medicare supplement or Medigap policy. So when you are first eligible for Medicare at age 65, it's basically a guaranteed issue for, for most people. However, if you start on a Medicare Advantage plan and then later decide that you prefer original Medicare with a supplement, uh, you may have to prove an insurability in order to get a Medicare supplement after that, that age 65 initial enrollment. Before I mentioned about 
the you know structuring your income and how that can impact any subsidies that people would get for their health insurance. And there's something similar to that in the Medicare world. And so the higher the income that you have in retirement, the more premiums that you might actually pay for your Medicare Part B. And so what you what you see here, these are the uh, the Medicare Part B rates for next year. And these rates are determined based on the last income that the government has on file for you. So in other words, we haven't filed our 2021 taxes yet. Therefore, the last tax return that the government has on file for us would be the 2020 tax return. And so the income that you showed for 2020 is what's used to calculate what your Medicare premium is for 2022. Now, what's very interesting here is that uh, let's take an example of a married couple. So filing a joint tax return. And let's say that they have $182,000 of income. And so each spouse would pay $170.10 per month for their Medicare Part B premium. However, if they have one more dollar of income, if they have $182,001 of income, now each spouse pays $238.10 per month. So that one extra dollar of income cost them an extra $1,632 for that year of, of Medicare. Um, and so there's this cliff schedule that happens with Medicare. All right, let's shift gears a little bit to another building block for retirement and talk about investment income. So the first big question is really, how much are you going to spend? And, and actually this comes from our friends over at Fidelity. And the studies and the, and the research shows that you know, the, that rule of thumb of replacing 80% of your income when you retire really doesn't apply when you're starting out with a higher income in the first place. And so most folks that have higher income while they're working, that replacement ratio is really a whole lot less than 80%. So sometimes a better gauge there is to really figure out, well, what are the expenses, taking into consideration that perhaps the mortgage is going to be paid off in the near future. You're not going to have disability insurance or maybe life insurance premiums, but perhaps you pick up long-term care insurance premiums. And then of course that health insurance before and after age 65 becomes a factor there as well. So another way to look at this is to actually look at, well, all right, instead of figuring out the expenses, how much income can I have? And so what we're looking at is uh, what are sustainable withdrawal rates. And so this comes out of uh, the original Bill Bengen study. You may have heard of the 4% rule. That was followed up by the Trinity study, Trinity University. And there's been numerous academic studies after those as well. The concept though is how much can I withdraw from my portfolio, but make sure that I don't run out of money when I'm in the, the later years of my retirement. And so what you'll notice on here, well, if if you're retiring at an older age and perhaps retirement is shorter, you can actually withdraw a higher percentage of your portfolio because that portfolio needs to last for a shorter period of time. Versus on the other end of the spectrum, if you retire young, now we need that portfolio to last longer. Therefore, the amount that you can withdraw starts at a lower amount. And you notice I have two different columns here uh, so here's a 30-year retirement starting with withdrawals at 5% versus at 4%. And the percentages that you see on the y-axis here, this is the probability of success. So it uses something called the Monte Carlo analysis. It's thousands of different simulations to figure out 
if it's a bear market, bull market, everything in between, uh, what's the probability that that portfolio is going to last for at least, in this case, 30 years, starting at either a 4% withdrawal or 5% withdrawal rate. The different color bars on this chart, uh, this represents a 50% stock portfolio, 75% stock or 100% stock portfolio. And so you can see the differences there. So, so as we start to figure out, well, where's this income gonna come from? Let's just use 4% as a, as a starting point. And so let's say that you, uh, you want $100,000 of net income, maybe it's around 120,000 a year. We've got Social Security from, uh, from each spouse, totaling about $3,500 a month, which means now we've got to take out $6,500 from the investments in order to gross $10,000 a month. Well, that's $6,500 from investments, that's $78,000 a year, 4% withdrawal. That means that you need a portfolio of just under $2 million to generate uh, that $78,000 a year or $6,500 per month. So that's kind of a starting point here. Let's take this another step further. One of the things that we know from research is that the, the rate of spending tends to decline over time in retirement. And so those younger years of retirement, uh, people tend to be more active, do more, and uh, take those trips and everything else that they've been putting off. So those go-go years, kind of those middle years of retirement, those slow-go years, and then I'll uh, get into the you know late 80s, early 90s, and spending on living expenses really slows down. However, we do see an uptick in healthcare-related expenses. And the thing to really notice on here is that the y-axis on here is that even though the spending goes up a little bit each year because of inflation, the living expense number actually decreases. So the spending may go up a little bit, but we're not going up as fast as inflation is going up. So let's apply that now to that initial withdrawal. So we said, hey, initially we're going to take 4% on the portfolio. But what if we now take into consideration that our spending, based on all the research, is probably going to decline a little bit over time? And so that's what we're looking at on here. So we're starting with that 4% rate of withdrawal. That's what the light blue box is on the bottom. And then this first column is suggesting that, well, if we decrease spending by 1% per year. In other words, if inflation goes up 3% per year, that means our net increase each year is going to go up by 2% because we're expecting our living expenses would actually decrease 1% per year. So we're actually spending more but we're still a little bit reduced after uh, factoring in for inflation. So that's what this first column represents. The second column really represents the fact that, well, we're really going from you know, a 1% decline in spending, bottoming out at a basically a 2% decline in spending, and then it increases by you know, roughly 1% later on. And in doing that, that initial withdrawal rate jumps from 4%, you know, closer to 5%. If we plan on, you know, following that that change in spending over time, so that's really one way to uh, to look at how much can be spent. Now, what we also know with research and analysis that in most cases people can spend a whole lot more than that bare minimum, you know, four percent amount, and so that's where these guardrails come in. 
And so the idea here is that uh, this middle line is the value of the portfolio over time. And if the value of the portfolio falls below a certain guardrail, well, we might have to uh, limit spending a little bit. But the reverse is also true. If the portfolio does exceptionally well, we've had numerous years of decent market growth uh, recently. And so if the portfolio has performed above expectation and exceeded the guardrails on the top side, we can also factor in that there is an opportunity to spend even more because the portfolio has done better than expected. And so that's, that's the concept there with the guardrails. Now with that, we have to follow a number of rules. And so these are some of those rules that um, are part of that. You know, part of it depends on, well, where is the income gonna come from? So for example, like the second rule here, well, withdrawals are gonna first come from any overweight in asset classes, especially on the stock side or equities. Then we're gonna take overweight from fixed income, cash, and so forth. We're not gonna take withdrawals from the stock side of the portfolio if there's a negative return uh, or if cash or fixed income is sufficient. So, so these are a sample of some of those guardrail rules that we follow if we're going to really stretch and take more than that, that base amount from the portfolio each year. So we're gonna move on to Social Security now. And with Social Security, if you don't have your Social Security statement available, highly recommend using the Social Security Estimator. Feel free to go there right now if you'd like. It's uh, ssa.gov slash benefits slash retirement slash estimator, or just Google Social Security Estimator, and you'll get a page that, that has this uh, Estimate Retirement Benefits button on it. And the estimator is really helpful because you can request an estimate of your benefits even if you don't work another day. So one of the problems with the social security statement that you receive is that the statement assumes that you continue working at whatever you earned last year through age 62, your full retirement age and age 70. But in using the social security estimator, uh, you can actually put in some of your own criteria here. And so you see in this case, uh, the top three estimates here, this, is, this assumes that somebody retires today and then they don't start their benefits until age 70, 67, or 62. So no more earnings uh, between now and then. In other words, this is the amount of Social Security that they are entitled to based on their history to this point in time. The bottom three projections, uh, this assumes they continue working until those, those years of 67, 70, and 70, uh, 62. And so this is how you uh, add those three different scenarios there with that zero future income earnings. Uh, you just simply add a new estimate within the estimator, choose the age. I like those three, 62, 70, and then whatever your full retirement age is. It's either 66 or age 67 for most folks. So full retirement age is an important age to know when you're doing Social Security planning. And it's based on when you were born. Congress made some changes to the Social Security formula. And basically what they're doing is they're making, they're, they're withholding some benefits, so to speak, until you are older to receive full retirement age. So it used to be age 65. Now it's been stretched up to age 67 as full retirement age for most people. The remainder of the chart that you're looking at here, this is if you started to receive Social Security before your full retirement age. So let's look at 1960 and later on the, on the bottom row here. So full retirement age for somebody born in 1960 or later is age 67. 
And so you see there that they would receive 100% of their retirement benefit amount from Social Security at age 67. If they started beforehand as early as age 62, they're only receiving 70% and so forth. After full retirement age, it increases in their case by 8% uh, per year. So three years times 8%. 24%, so at age 70, 124% of their full retirement age amount is what they would receive at age 70. So the question is always, well, what's the optimal time to start Social Security? When should I start uh, my Social Security? When should my spouse start her Social Security? So there's a couple of different ways to look at this. And this is where we need to do some math and sometimes some financial calculators can really help in this regard. One way to look at this is to say, well, all right, if, if I'm retired, but I want to postpone Social Security until age 70, so I get that highest amount, well, I need to live on something while I'm waiting to receive Social Security later. So that means I'm going to have to spend some of my portfolio while I'm waiting. And so that's what this far right column is, is this is a, a, looking at what's the, the couple's net worth if they delay Social Security until age 70. The column in the middle here, this is the same couple, but now they're receiving Social Security starting at age 62. Yes, it's a smaller dollar amount that they're receiving from, from Social Security. However, now they can spend money from Social Security rather than spending their nest egg. And so what you see highlighted in green, these are the years where their, their net worth is actually higher because they were able to spend Social Security rather than uh, spending their nest egg. And so even though Social Security in the right column here starts at age 70 for this couple, their net worth really doesn't catch up because they have that higher Social Security check. Their net worth really doesn't catch up until they're in their late 80s in this case. So again, everybody's gonna be a little bit different here, but that's one way the net worth calculation uh, to look at Social Security. I do wanna point out though too, you know, net worth typically means that its investments, which is going to add some variability here. So yes, while on the right side, this, this couple is waiting until age 70, they do have a higher guaranteed income for the remainder of their retirement as well. So there's definitely a trade-off there. Now, the other little wrinkle, and I see this quite often in physician households, um, and it's the spousal benefit. And what it says is that, let's use a typical scenario of uh, the husband is a higher earner, and perhaps the wife stayed at home with the kids for a number of years or was a lower earner, right? Not to be gender biased here, that's just more often the case than not. What happens is the, the lower earning spouse, that wife that stayed home with the kids, she's actually eligible for the higher of two benefits. She's eligible for the higher of her own benefit or half of her higher earning husband's benefit. And so th this is a real uh, real client case here. So uh, the husband at full retirement age, his was age 66 and eight months. He'd received just over $3,200 at that point. Uh, the wife did have some, some working history. And so she had her own social security benefit that would have provided $858 a month. However, she's entitled to the higher of the two, either 50% of his or hers, whichever gives her the greater benefit. So she'd actually receive just over $1,600 a month in benefits. Now that's at her full retirement age. So 
In this case, her full retirement age is 66 and a half. If she started her Social Security benefits before then, you know, as early as age 62, that monthly amount would be discounted because uh, she's starting earlier. Now, the spousal benefit gets discounted for early, but it doesn't increase after full retirement age. And so this is another one of those situations where because she can't receive this spousal benefit unless he is receiving his benefit, this may be a case where he may delay his Social Security until she reaches her full retirement age. At that point, he would start Social Security, which then allows her to receive that spousal benefit. So delaying until age 70 in, in this case probably doesn't make the most sense because her spousal benefit won't increase after her, her full retirement age. In other words, if he waited until age 70, she would have gone without that additional income for those years between her 66 and a half and whenever he turned age 70. The other little caveat with Social Security is the survivor benefit. And so here we have our two spouses. One spouse has the, the higher benefit here, indicated by the $2 signs. One spouse has a lower benefit, indicated by the change sign there. And so the survivor between the two spouses keeps the larger of the two Social Security checks. And so this is another reason why it often makes sense, if you can, to delay the higher of the two Social Security checks. Uh, start that one later because that Social Security check is going to go on for the longer of those the lifetime between the, the two spouses. So moving on to estate documents, this is going to be fairly brief uh, regarding this, but in Wisconsin, there's typically five different documents that uh, make up a proper estate plan. Uh, so a will, transfers assets without probate, uh, financial and healthcare power of attorney documents. These are really important. You all know what a healthcare power of attorney document is. Financial power of attorney document does the same thing, but it allows somebody to make financial decisions for you. A trust is sometimes used to transfer assets similar to a will. However, unlike a will, it does not require the uh, going through court. It doesn't go through the probate process. And so that's one benefit of the trust. The other benefit is, is that if there are minor children or grandchildren or uh, even adult children where you want to uh, leave assets within the protection of the trust. And what that protection is, is uh, from things like a child gets divorced. Trust assets are not divisible in a divorce. If a child has, has problems with creditors or being sued for some reason, assets inside of that trust uh, are not necessarily able to, to be paid out to those creditors or because of that lawsuit. So there's that protective wrapper that that a trust can provide when it's properly drafted. A marital property agreement, because we're in Wisconsin, a community property state or marital property state uh, is often included as well. And that's just simply a way to transfer assets uh, to the trust without going through the probate process. So it's somewhat of a cleanup document. Now, that being said, sometimes there are little or no assets that actually transfer according to the will or trust. So assets that, that are titled with a new owner. So if you have joint titling between spouses, you know, a house is a perfect example of this. Many times couples will own houses jointly. Upon the first spouse's death, the surviving spouse takes full ownership of that home. Maybe a joint bank account would be another example of that. 
beneficiary designations, whether it's life insurance or retirement accounts, that takes precedence over anything that's written in a will or trust. In fact, what happens is you simply fill out a form, provide a copy of the death certificate, and the company will look up and say, all right, your named beneficiaries are, are your children or whoever you named to that account. And that's it. They don't even request a copy of the will or the trust. They just simply pay it out to whoever the beneficiaries are that are named on that account. A transfer on death or a payable on death, uh, those are synonymous with naming a beneficiary. It's often used on some investment accounts, uh, non-retirement investment accounts, and with, with bank accounts. Purse terpies is also included. This is a, uh, I believe it's a Latin term is where it came from, but it keeps assets in the bloodline. So let's say that we want to leave assets to the children. But if that child or children aren't alive, we want it to go down the bloodline to the grandchildren rather than going to that child's, you know, that child's spouse or to their brothers and sisters. So uh, that's what the purse derpy says. It says, I want to leave the, these assets to my daughter, but if she's not alive, I want those assets to go to her children instead. So let's talk about long-term care planning. So not necessarily long-term care insurance, but really what is the plan to pay for long-term care expenses? And this has to be part of a, uh, a retirement plan because this is one of the major financial expenses that can pop up for somebody's retirement. So some of the stats on that, 70% of those people turning age 65 will retire some type of care, whether that means you're modifying your home, you need uh, somebody to come in and help with groceries, medication, bathing, uh, all those fun things. Assisted living centers, facilities can provide uh, a form of care as well as nursing homes. So here's what the cost of care is. You know, it, it really can run anything from nothing because I have a child or family member that can provide some of the care, or at, at least if they're willing to, all the way up to you know $100,000 plus per year for uh, full service nursing home type of care. So we gotta figure out how to pay for it, right? And so there's some options here. Medicaid uh, can provide some payment. However, uh, you do have to financially qualify for that, which basically means uh, you have to spend down most of your assets in order for Medicaid to pick up the bill. Medicare will provide for the first 100 days of care, at least a portion of it, assuming that there's a qualifying hospital stay first. Obviously, you can pay out of pocket. There are insurance policies. Traditionally, the, the long-term care policies covered nursing home, assisted living, home care. There are, are relatively newer policies out the last number of years that are a combination of life insurance with long-term care benefits or annuities with long-term care benefits. Those policies tend to be, they're, they're typically not as robust of a long-term care policy. They're typically not as robust as a traditional life insurance policy. They're, they're really, this, I don't want to say mediocre, but they're, they are in the middle there. And so there can be a place for those in some cases. I guess the argument for them is that at least somebody's getting something, right? So with the traditional long-term care policy, you pay thousands of dollars a year in premiums in many cases for the long-term care policy. 
And if nobody ever needs care, well, you paid thousands of dollars a year for that long-term care policy and that's it. With these hybrid policies, there's some beneficiary, somebody's gonna get something out of it. You know, that's, that's the quote unquote benefit with those policies these days. So I did do an analysis for a couple, uh, not too long ago, looking at, well, we've got really four scenarios here, right? Uh, you don't get any insurance and you stay healthy. You don't get any insurance and you're not healthy, you need care. You do get insurance and you either need care or you don't need care. And so uh, those values that are in that table on the bottom of the page, that is the projected uh, net worth for this couple in all four of those scenarios. And so there is a real cost of that premium. And you know, in this case, it was about $550,000 roughly out of their net worth that it was just for that premium. However, you know, if they didn't have insurance and they needed care, gosh, you know, that's a, that's a $1.8 million out of their net worth. So pros and cons, there's no, there's no black and white here. It's all gray when it comes to long-term care planning, unfortunately. So let's talk a little bit about taxes. I see this all the time for folks that are retired. And there is this, this drop in taxes after uh, retirement but then a tick up in taxes after age 72. So let's take a look at what's going on here. The green on this chart represents taxable income. The lines going across this chart represent the various tax brackets. And so what happens here is that this couple retired at age 67, wages went away, therefore taxable income dropped. However, at age 72, the taxable income jumped back up again. And that's because of something called a required minimum distribution. And what that is, is pre-tax retirement accounts, the IRS hasn't gotten their piece of the tax action yet, right? So they wanna tax that money. And so they have what are called uh, RMDs or required minimum distributions. They start at age 72. This is the table that's changing in, for next year. So these are the 2022 figures but it's equivalent to a little over three and a half percent of your pre-tax balance that you need to take out that first year. And then you see how that uh, that increases each year going forward. And so a little bit more and more and more money comes out each and every year. So on a $2 million tax deferred portfolio, that's about 73,000 bucks, dollars $110,000 for a $3 million portfolio. So if you're chugging along in retirement and have some social security income, maybe you have pension, maybe you have a rental property that's providing income and you don't need uh, that, that money from your, your retirement accounts to live on, lo and behold, you, you add another $70,000, $100,000 on top of the income that you already have from those other sources. And you can see how that might push you up into a higher tax bracket. And so here are the tax brackets for next year in 2022. Uh, the second column from the right, this is for married individuals. Second column from the left, this is for single individuals. And what we're looking at here is taxable income. And so again, you add up all of your income sources, whether it be social security, investment income, like I said, pension, or maybe some, some rental income. And then you stack on some required minimum distributions on top of that. And you can see how that might push you into a higher bracket. And so what do we do about that? Well. Those years between retirement and age 72 are often the most critical tax planning years because you have the opportunity to 
realize some additional income at a low tax bracket. And so all of these tax deferred retirement accounts, they have to be taxed at some point, whether you pay the taxes or if you leave it to your kids or family, they're going to owe income taxes on it. So the taxes have to be paid at some point unless you leave the charity. So let's pay those taxes at the lowest tax rate we possibly can. And it happens to be in many cases right between retirement and age 72. And in this case, uh, this is a, a real calculation there. What we did is accelerate some of that income into those years by doing what are called Roth conversions. So taking money from the tax deferred account, paying taxes on it, and then putting it inside of a Roth account where it can grow tax-free. And in this case, it saved over $1.6 million in taxes over this, this couple's lifetime. So taxes can really make a huge difference when you're starting to do some planning. That will wrap up this edition of WISMED On Call. If you liked what you heard, visit our website, wismed.org, and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions or feedback, send an email to communications at wismed.org. Thanks for listening.